0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello there, Geraldine Dug with you, and a big welcome to Extra. It's just lovely to have you company each Monday. After last week's election loss, the Liberal Party has entered a pretty predictable period of soul-searching and recriminations and figuring figuring out what to do next. It's surely not hyperbole to say they suffered a revolution from within, really, with the success of so many independent candidates, particularly in blue-ribbon inner-city electorates. It's prompted much rethinking. What really happened? Whatever the trend amounts to, when did it start? Well, two people join me now who've been absorbed in this question for quite a while, coming from different perspectives. Greg Barnes is a barrister, an author and a former political advisor to Liberal ministers and leaders. He was disendorsed as a Liberal candidate in 2002 due to his criticism of the Howard government's asylum seeker policies. And he's since moved away from the party. And he's also charted the rise of the right within Liberal ranks in a number of books and op-eds. And he joins us from his Hobart home along with Dr Judith Brett, a Melbourne historian well-known to RN listeners who's written quite widely on the Liberal Party and with considerable acclaim. Her, her latest on that score, even though that came out uh, a while ago, being Australian Liberals and the Moral Middle Class. Welcome to you both.
2: Thank you, Geraldine. Um, Thanks,
1: Geraldine. Greg, your impression first, please. Was last weekend a vote for independent women, mostly, or was it against the existing Liberal Party? I think there's a distinction there, and I wonder how you see it.
3: Look, I think there is a distinction, but uh, I think there's certainly a vote against the existing Liberal Party, uh, because if you look at the electorates uh, that uh, these teal candidates were elected in, they are Liberal electorates, but they're also electorates where Over many years, there's been increasing discomfort with the right-wing populism of the Liberal Party, going back really to John Howard's years. Uh, And so, uh, you know, it really relied on a candidate coming along who was a a social liberal and economic liberal uh, to fill that void. And when it did come along, that combined with uh, the fact that these were very impressive candidates and also the, the climate change overlay, meant that uh, the Liberal Party was going to struggle because these were candidates who represented values of many voters in that electorate who previously may have voted Liberal.
1: So you think this was brewing and really, if you stepped back, not surprising to see this, this. There was a search on, you're saying, which wasn't being met.
3: Uh, absolutely, and I, you know, I wrote a book back in 2003 called "What's Wrong with the Liberal Party," which said that you know there's a gap in the political ideas marketplace because John Howard had moved the party to the right, uh, and that gap has finally been filled in some of these electorates. Now, Judith, you describe it
1: as a significant class defection. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm. Would like you to build on that, please.
2: Well, look, these are all well-educated, professional women. Um, and they come. F- they, you know, founded the party, the profession, and in and really up until Whitlam, I suppose, well-educated professional people voted Liberal. That was, that was mm. sort of in their DNA, as you say. And so these are the sort of people who would have once been Liberal Party people. And I mean, I also think that. One of the things that's significant about the candidates is not just that they're women, but also that they're not party political careerists. I think, you know, the parties haven't been that good at selecting candidates with broad experience, and these are all people who've achieved real success in outside of politics and have brought that that and are able to bring that experience into the into politics. And I think people have been looking for that. Um, you know, I think the sort of Tim Smith type candidate, the people who, you know, join the join the lib, young Lib or young Labor as undergraduates mm. and then work their way up to
1: positions are not really very attractive, I don't think. Well, I think this is what I'm trying to tease out today. What... what felt like, I suppose, to be in the... If you were inside the Liberal Party or tr- or wondering whether you should be and whether you felt welcome, which is what I think... I mean, you've got very strong views, Greg, but uh, uh, you you have been there and, and then got out of it and then got quite angry about it. So, I mean, did you sense that the friendships changed inside, that, that people didn't feel capable of speaking up, they felt out on the outer... Yes, give us your sense of how that was developing. L- leaving us, well, you can bring in um, policies if you like, but it's almost more that sure. sensibility I'm uh, after.
3: No, look, it's a good it's a good point, Geraldine. And certainly when I talk to people who previously have been members of the Liberal Party, uh, what they say is, particularly for social and economic liberals, uh, the party was pretty unwelcoming. And uh, I've spoken to many people over the years who've indicated that. And then they look at people... Like Fred Cheney, for example, whose niece, of course, just got elected as a teal candidate, uh, and they look at uh, John Houston, many many others who were previously members of the party, and they that you know they feel the same, and so the party now, uh, the Liberal Party now, is you know whilst you've got a few smaller L Liberal uh, people who are still members of the party, it's predominantly now a right wing populist party, and it has been for some years, and so you know, from that perspective, it's a party which has attracted uh, those who subscribe to that particular view of the world rather than those who are, you know, social and economically liberal.
1: And you think that that really began 20 years, 1820, a lot, like a lot of people would say, yes, that that was accelerated under Tony Abbott and so on. But you think that that did start a long time ago. And was it consciously done, do you think, under John Howard? That's your view?
3: Well, there's no, no, no doubt about that. I mean, the soft-peddling on Pauline Hanson, the, the, the Tampa policy, which, of course, was uh, anything but economically liberal. I know the journalist Robert Milliken last year, I think, said it cost $26 billion. So, you know, you've had this move to right-wing populism, which has been, you know, uh, economically irresponsible. Uh, it's also been, of course, pandering to very conservative groups in the community, particularly the religious right. That happened and started under John Howard. It didn't start under Tony Abbott.
1: Mm. I mean, Judith, interestingly, like if you look back at Australian political history, and I mean, you've written about it, Labor Mm. for many years um, had to struggle for status in a way, to be seen as worthy occupiers of power. And the Libs and the the Country Party, as it was, the Nats, had it to themselves in a sense, didn't they? Were the... Could they not really cope as well with the competition that arrived once you got a lot of the educated people coming through and you got sort of mass public education brought in by Robert Menzies, I might add, um, that, that this changed the underlying ability to a sort of almost sense of themselves as to who had the right to occupy the seats of power?
2: Yeah, well, look, I think um, the election of the Whitlam government was is a turning point because at that point... Um, a a young sort of social democratic cohort of educated young people, many of whom were from, you know, professional middle-class families, went across to to Labor. And so Labor became a more complicated party with the sort of tensions between those people and its working-class base that we Mm. know about. Um, But, uh, look, I think competence has been a big issue uh, for the Liberal Party, particularly... Since two thousand and thirteen, when um, when Abbott was elected, because one of the things the Liberals always prided themselves on, and and their predecessors, you know, right back to the to the beginning of of, of the twenty. Uh, 20 20th century, was that they could provide the people who had the experience and the competence to run the country, and effectively, what I mean, what I think we saw since 2013 was a ser- was a series of incompetent governments, and I think that really came to a head, and under um, under Morrison, I think that's probably the most incompetent government in my lifetime, more incompetent than Billy McMahon, and mm-hmm. liberal the Liberal Party. And liberal support. So I don't think it's just a matter of values. I think that's important, as Greg's saying. But I think it's also about competence.
1: Well, it is interesting. And Zoe Daniel, I noticed, you know, who's the new independent member elect for Goldstein. She wrote a piece the other day saying uh, we listened while our communities told us what was driving them away from the major parties. Developing what you were saying: discussion, not division; evidence, not excess. These are our secrets. You know, that quite a sober minded sort of list. Now, of course, whether they're going to be able to maintain that, you know, in our system is going to be the big challenge, isn't it? But um, I wonder whether there's, there was, and, and it's a more, well, it's more a relational female type tone, isn't it?
2: Yes, and also I think the really hard-edged partisanship that, we, that we've we seen since Howard and, and it really it is an extreme under Abbott where we saw the Liberal Party shift away from policies that accepted, um, for example, on negative gearing, doing something there once Labor accepted it because and, – and much of the – Debate or the noise around the failed, various failed energy policies was this is going to make us look too much like the Labor Party. Not whether or not this is a good policy and good for the country as a whole, but it was about brand differentiation. And that was stopping us getting competent government because of this really, you know, just knee jerk, uh, well, Mm. partisanship. And I think you're right that, you know, the. women have been associated more with seeking consensus and middle ground and giving a little bit to get a decent outcome. And I think that's what um, one of the things that we've seen in, in, in last Saturday night's election.
1: Yes. Um, Greg, one of our listeners has said, I have thought over the last 20 years that the Liberal Party has looked to the US Republican Party for inspiration, which included bringing in large numbers of evangelical Christians. Now I wonder what you think that is abroad that argument, uh, and I've certainly heard it that they that you know the Americans who were so dominant particularly in the time after the fall of the Soviet Union, and they sort of said you know that there are drifts here that are happening in the u s and they will inevitably come to you um and I don't, mm. and i you know I think it probably did influence the liberal party but I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that
3: uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that um, certainly there has been um, that influence in the Liberal Party over the past 20 years and probably uh, uh, certainly prior, just prior to Tony Abbott and certainly after Tony Abbott. And if you look at a lot of the issues in, you know, and in fact, I've just come back from Perth doing a case as a lawyer, but um, talking to Liberals, uh, people who vote Liberal over there, their big complaint has been, oh, you know, the Christian right's taken over the party now. I don't know whether that's right. There's certainly some influence. They certainly in say Australia. that. Yeah, and they say it and they say it too in New South Wales, uh, and they said it for some time here in Tasmania. And there's no doubt about that. But I think the other issue is this that, that the language of division uh, has been uh, part and parcel of the Liberal Party since Howard. people. People might forget this, but this was the person who said used the term battlers versus elites. And, this, and then, of course, with, with the Tampa incident, you had this, you know, uh, division between, uh, uh, you know, those who live in Australia and those who try and come in here and uh, you know, so that that's, that sort of divisive politics has been a hallmark of the Liberal Party uh, and conflict, uh, you know, manufacturing conflict in society and setting people apart has been an issue. And I think that's why Zoe Daniels' piece is probably very attractive to many people and what she's saying and, and, and independent candidates and in what they're saying, which is to bring people together and to end this partisanship.
1: Well, look, uh, John Black, who's an actually an ex-Labour senator, but doing a lot of work now in polling and... Um... You know, writing in the Financial Review. <laughs> I mean, he wrote what I know has been said, but it still is a shock when you read it when he did an analysis on Monday. Basically, this was all about the money. If you had it, you swung against the Liberals. If you didn't, you swung towards them. Now, I mean, that is still staggering to read, isn't it, Greg? Mm. But, we, but mm. we've now heard it enough. We've got to get... A- Get over being staggered and say, "Well, where does that leave, where does that leave them, and what's the consequence of this? And I'll ask you the same question.
3: Look, I think that the consequence is the Liberal Party uh, you know is called the Liberal Party, not the Conservative party, uh, and uh, there's got to be something in the name. And if you keep, if if you drive away uh, people who think about the world in sort of fairly global terms, as I say, social and economic liberals, you're really shrinking uh, the capacity of your party to to govern in the future because uh, you're always going to be battling over those out of Western Sydney seats with Labor. They're always going to be marginal. Uh, and if you've lost your heartland, then uh, it's very, very difficult, I think, also to get it back because, uh, you know, living in Andrew Wilkie's seat, I know how strong independents are and how they can hang on to a seat and hold a seat but the Liberal Party's got to become attractive and have attractive candidates. I think Judith made a very good point earlier about, you know, the careerists are no longer attractive, to people, but but decent Liberals as opposed to Conservatives will have a chance of bringing those seats back.
1: And how do you see this, uh, Judith? Um, you know, can the, well, the, the other Libs, is, is this their new role, representing well, those I, without money? Or the declining part of Australia, as Cos Samara well, said yes, on the ABC, it's I'm, an amazing moment.
2: Yeah, but he says that about Tasmania. Yes. He doesn't say that about about the rest of of, of the country. Um, so, and I didn't see John Black's piece. So, you know, the thing is Labor held on to many of those, of those seats in, in the western suburbs of Melbourne and Sydney. So I think it, he's, he's overstating it a little bit. Um, there might have been a swing. Um, but I also, I suppose I'm interested in the confidence of government. And so where are they going to get, candidates who are capable of being really effective ministers of state. I mean, that's because I think that was a real problem under Morrison, that effectively that was a a terrible cabinet that he had. You know, all the talent had left it pretty much. Um, And so the party has to be able to recruit people who want to who who want who want to represent it and who have got the confidence and the skills and the intelligence to actually become, you know, good cabinet ministers. So that that's a, a I can't see them solving that problem easily at the moment.
1: All right. Uh, look, thank you both very much indeed. I, you know, it's uh, is a discussion that will go on for a long time. But I, I thought this was an important moment a week after that amazing election, to try to tackle it. Judith, Brett, thank you to you. Thank you for having me, Geraldine. And uh, Greg Barnes, thank you to you.
3: And thank you very much, Geraldine.
1: Uh, And Judith Brett's uh, Australian Liberals and the Moral Middle Class, that's Cambridge University Press, Greg Barnes' latest book, The Rise of the Right, The War on Australia's Liberal Values, published by Hardy Grant Books. That's a 2019 publication. Your thoughts most welcome. They're coming in. Up next, our May edition of A Foreign Affair. To walk the road of peace, sometimes we need to be ready to climb the mountain of conflict. Tommy said, Mr. President, you're wrong. Now that takes a lot of guts.
4: I'm for peace and quiet, Mr. Lude, It's why I came to the UN, quiet diplomacy.
1: Yes, now to our regular feature where we tease out our relationships with other nations and events in the world. And sometimes these issues, rightly or wrongly, uh, take a backseat to domestic concerns, especially during election periods, but not of late, as we see the intense responses to the regional challenges Australia now faces. We've seen the Quad Summit, for instance, the first foreign meeting for Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. And Penny Wong, the new Foreign Affairs Minister, has hit the ground running and addressed Fijian leaders yesterday.
2: We reaffirm that climate change remains the single greatest threat to the livelihoods, security and wellbeing of the peoples of the Pacific. You've been saying this for a long time. Pacific leaders were saying this to me when I was climate minister over a decade ago. And you've been
1: crystal clear and you've been consistent. Penny Wong's visit coincides with the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi's tour of the Pacific, which is all really re- quite incredible. To discuss these events and how an incoming government might deal with the challenges, it's my pleasure to welcome our panel this month. Rory Medcalf, head of the National Security College at the Australian National University. Sonia Arakal is a senior policy officer at the Perth US Asia Centre. And John McCarthy is one of our most eminent diplomats, ex-diplomats, writing regularly on uh, matters of foreign affairs. Welcome to you all. Hello. Thanks for having us. Um, yeah. Look, let's start with this super busy Pacific. How extraordinary is it to have duelling visits in the region from Foreign Minister Penny Wong and China's uh, very influential Foreign Minister Wang Yi in um, what appears to be a very serious lobbying blitz? First to you, Rory Medcalf.
0: It, it is extraordinary, but it's really a, a stark reflection that the future is here, that the strategic competition in the region has accelerated and we can't, if you like, have the, the luxury of time anymore. Um, I think it's, it's impressive from an Australian perspective that the new Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, has has hit the ground running with this and, and, and it's been quite seamless. If you look at the messages that she's taking, not only the speeches but the commitments and, and the whole new tone of engagement, she has clearly been thinking about this a long time and has some pretty significant preparation behind her, including preparation in the bureaucracy. I would argue that we should not be, if you like, despairing about the uh, the state of the Pacific now, because in a sense, the race is just on. I think the Chinese bid uh, for some kind of regional arrangement where many countries in the region sign on to Chinese terms and conditions for economic and security engagement could well be overreach. It could be a case of China playing its hand too early. And I think now Australia has to not only get in there on our own, but with a much wider range of partners and friends to give alternatives to uh, to China and to use the new policy position, the new rhetoric of Australia on issues like climate change as a way of, of building the trust.
1: Yes, um, I must say, Sonia, I heard, as we had Bobo Lowe on the program earlier, saying at the end of his uh, question and answer session at the Lowe Institute this week, he so outcompete the Chinese, outcompete them <laughs> with your soft power fundamentally. I mean obviously with hard power in there as well, and we'll come to that. But it was a, quite an invitational thing, the antithesis of um, you're on the back foot.
5: Absolutely. And it sounds like the new foreign minister is thinking along those lines. Um, First of all, we've had a huge leg up through her announcement around climate change diplomacy and Australia's intention to be more front forward with that. The Pacific Islands nations have been telling us for years that this is something that they want. But there's also indications that Australia is going to be thinking uh, more creatively about how we win the hearts and minds of everyday islanders and not just think about cash injections to capture the elite in the island countries. And this signals um, provisions like migrant pathways, educational links, um, signals a more relational approach to outreach in the Pacific Islands than a transactional one. And I think that is where uh, in the competition for a strategic influence in the area, Australia has uh, natural advantages. Mm, Very interesting. Look, it does seem that
1: reports are true that China is seeking security deals with up to 10 nations in the Pacific, not just the Solomons. Here's Anote Tong, a former president of Kiribati from 2003 to 2016. He's seen the letter from China, apparently, to the Pacific countries, and he spoke to RN Breakfast this week.
4: Well, it's it's really about uh, an agreement which is being discussed, I believe, on the 30th of this month, at the end of this month, and it's... um my read is that it's basically pretty much along the lines of uh, something like the Pacific Island Forum sort of charter, I would suggest. So it, it contains security, policing and uh, cooperation, economic cooperation and fisheries, and of course, and um, uh, it's a very broad uh, agreement.
1: Uh, now, John McCarthy, you've wrote it very interestingly this week. A country's foreign policy is shaped by both history and geography. I wonder how sort of remarks and sentiments like those we've just heard play into your thesis about how we now behave ideally.
6: Well, we obviously got to think in terms of geography. Look, just uh, on what we should do right now, I think the first thing is avoid the temptation to panic Some very notable scholars on the South Pacific, such as uh, James Batley and uh, Jonathan Pryke, have written about the fact that we still have a much, much bigger presence in the South Pacific than China. Overwhelmingly bigger also, including in economic terms. Where we have really dropped the bundle is in information conveyance to the South Pacific. That is to say, not only training journalists, but in uh, dropping almost any public interest media broadcasting to the South Pacific, particularly on subject matters of importance to those Pacific islands. That's a, a huge deficiency in our policy over the last 10 or 15 years. So, you know, those are sorts of areas that we have to look at. But I think I just want to underline one other point that Rory made, and that is the importance of getting our partners involved. You know, we have an issue with the French, and yet the French are really now, certainly in Polynesia, the most significant Western power. You know, We need them, we need to work with them. We need to put that relationship back into shape for that reason alone, for South Pacific regions alone. The Japanese are active. They, they can be persuaded to be more active. And, of course, uh, it's time perhaps Uncle Sam uh, took a little bit more interest. They're just reopening a embassy in the Solomons. So we shouldn't regard ourselves as sort of Ourselves and New Zealanders and lonely people here,
1: that's all. Uh, I mean, it is interesting because the French are reaching out already (laughs) straight away, and that was also on uh, breakfast this week with the uh, French, um, I think there's been phone calls already exchanged. So that is clearly underway. I wonder what your assessment is, Rory, as to whether any other nations, like we've had the whole focus on the Solomons, what's your reading of... um, how these this Chinese outreach is going to go down, M- might others sign up? Well,
0: I think you know frankly the whole of um of Melanesia and a good chunk of Micronesia as well is is in play uh, for influence, and where we have to focus on their decision making, their agency and their interests is is not even necessarily looking at these nations uh, in their entirety but looking at the political decisions that will be made internally. I think, let's face it, You know, Solomon Islands is a, a divided nation on these issues. That's one of the reasons precisely why uh, there were riots in Honiara last year and why China's and Sogavari himself has seized this opportunity for a security presence. Uh, I think you're going to find that these issues, uh, that this bid for influence by China is going to become controversial across much of the region. And that's why uh, civil society, the the support and empowerment of, of journalists, for example, is going to be, and, and that information push that, that that John spoke about, is going to be so important. I would be... Looking ultimately, though, to uh, the role of PNG, Papua New Guinea, which is not a small country uh, and where I, I think in many ways the, the, the hinge or the or the fate of the, the contest for influence across the southwest Pacific will ultimately decided, be decided because the decisions uh, taken in, in Moresby along with... Um, Uh, with with Honiara and Suva, I I think we'll we'll end up setting the tone.
1: I wonder, you know, Sonia, whether this will finally get Australians generally, not just the people who are interested in foreign affairs, curious about the Pacific, seriously curious about the Pacific and come to understand it in, in a range of nuanced terms. What's your feeling?
5: Well, I think Australia has a long history in the Pacific, um, and there's some natural interest that comes with the cross-pollination of our people, and but it's it's include- detached, it's been detached, I would argue. or maybe you I don't think- agree. No, I think if we look at our sporting codes, um, or if we look even religiously, there are some important ties in the rugby world, uh, in the Christian movement that tie the two communities together, Um, just to name a few. Pacific workers are really important to the workforce in Australia, and um, I think there are opportunities to kind of really articulate this and put it front and forward as a part of our diplomatic outreach. Though I I did want to pick up on something Rory said, Mm. you know, I'm not an expert in Pacific studies, but I work at the Perth US Asia Centre and here in Australia's India Ocean Capital, we look at what the Indian Ocean can teach us about what's happening in the Solomon Islands. Um, And while the East Coast strategic community has that traditional expertise in the Pacific, we can actually find some analogous situations in the Indian Ocean where China has coupled like a security agreement Mm. and and economic arrangements. So Djibouti, Pakistan, Sri Lanka. And these two uh, countries, Pakistan and Sri Lanka, give the Solomon Islands maybe cause for concern and how tying their uh, interests with Chinese interests have played out. Both countries are currently subject to massive protests, debt and dwindling cash reserves. This is arguably a consequence of the increasing reliance on China. That's the- a
1: little tough on China, isn't it? The, the, the Sri Lanka issue is so complicated. And I mean, they're going to have to turn to China. Obviously, they're utterly broke, China and India. So, I mean, what do you really mean there?
5: I guess for Sri Lanka, it's actually increased their bargaining power in terms of three-way competition between China, the US and India. So, based on how you know things are developing, the island countries could be increasing their bargaining space between Australia, China and whoever mm. else, as John said, might enter the strategic fray.
1: Yes, yes. Uh,
0: can I just reinforce that excellent point? Because... Mm-hmm. Uh, Maldives also needs to be in that mix. And in fact, if you look at the experience of, of, of Maldives as an Indian Ocean, small island country, that had its flirtation with Chinese money money and influence and had a democratic pushback against that a number of years ago, uh, I think there are some fantastic lessons there at island scale that Pacific Island countries may, may be interested in. And they're not lessons being imposed by Australia or any great power. They're, they're lessons in a very analogous environment. So that's an excellent point, I think. Yes, yeah,
1: interesting. My guests are Rory Medcalf, Sonia Arakal and John McCarthy. And we're uh, on to... Our May, a foreign affair, very timely. Look, I want to go into a slightly broader issue, which is pertinent here, uh, John McCarthy. Australia's former intelligence chief, Duncan Lewis, has actually just come out this week saying that Australia has been rather louder than we should have been in public criticism of China. And he actually said, and I'm reading it here, when we might well have been better to have been one back and one wide in terms and obviously sort of just go a bit quieter, always make sure you're twinning with another great power in in your various critiques and so on. Now, you're very engaged and exercised in how we, the tone and the language we strike now. We've got a new government, I suppose it offers chances of a reset. What do you think about his responses and do you think they do offer us some uh, cause for pause?
6: Oh, I think he's dead right. I have no doubt about that. I think we've been too prone over recent years to engage in what I term headbutt diplomacy. It's just going in, you know, and not paying sufficient heed to the consequences, playing to the domestic gallery, thinking that looking tough is good politics, uh, chest banging megaphone diplomacy all these phrases and you know it has been very plentiful in australian public uh, life in recent years and it's not good foreign policy if you're able to get something out of your the person or the or the country with whom you're having difficulties you don't normally do it by just going in harder you you have to sort of try and persuade. And I think uh, we've made uh, terrible mistakes in that area. And I don't think tone is everything by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a good chunk of it, particularly when you're dealing with Asian countries, you know, who aren't used to in the same way to the way we deal with the media. You know, the Brits and Americans, Canadians, French all understand that. It really does matter. Now, uh, many might say this is the view of just... uh, a professional diplomat, but uh, I think I'm right.
1: Well, you said in a recent article that has been shared a lot that you need to have a balance in a decent foreign policy between hard and soft power, um, you know, between the diplomacy um, and all that flows from that and between the the military establishment who obviously and very much they're saying we need to spend a lot more than two to three percent on our defence if we're really going to equip ourselves properly. Now, I really want to know, how will that sound? Will, Will that be different to what we've been used to for the last five
6: years? I think we say a little bit less about how much we're spending on defense. We, uh, we of course, do it. We, of course, uh, are very level-headed and purposeful about our defense. But at the same time, uh, we look to the importance of engagement, not only with China and the possibilities with China over the longer term, but particularly those countries in the middle. And I mean, above all here, Southeast Asia because that for Australia is going to be the biggest area of competition between ourselves and the Americans and the Japanese and China and that's where we have to do our real heavy lifting to get those countries are not aligned with us, but at least thinking uh, perhaps in a in a manner which is more sympathetic to our perspectives than to the perspectives of China.
1: Now, Rory, you've written, for instance, that China I'm quoting now is on a cynical offensive to convince Southeast Asia that Australia's defensive AUKUS agreement is unreconstructed Western imperialism. So, I think you take us. I think you have a different, a subtly different view to John's.
6: Yeah, I don't think no. it's too subtle. I, I know. I think he's got a different view. Uh,
5: but
0: I'm quoting the, um, the Chinese propaganda perspective there, and I think the look. I think to put my own sense of balance on this, I would say that a lot of the substantial things that previous Australian governments have been doing have been important building blocks of national security. Whether it's the uh, critical infrastructure protection, or the foreign interference laws, or the Quad, or AUKUS or or the steps taken to modernise defence capability. They've all been good and necessary things for national security. Some of the messaging, I think, hasn't been right. It has been, you know, pretty tone deaf to regional concerns. And I think where I would converge with John's view is is that, uh, you know, frankly, we we can and should have our cake and eat it too on this. We should be building national security capability quietly, firmly, um, without apology. But there are times where the messaging could be more careful. And on AUKUS, for example, um, an interesting counterfactual is to say perhaps it never needed to have a name. It never needed this um, this acronym or the you know the spectacle of the Australian, British, and American flags. at uh, The announcement. It, we just simply needed to get on with this. Well, how did that
1: happen? How did technology
0: that technology arrangement and have the same effect? The Chinese would have been just as rattled, but would have had less excuse to stir up propaganda about Australia. So that's where I think the message that the new government brings, the uh, for example, First Nations foreign policy, a more inclusive approach to the region, will be very helpful diplomatically. But on the material, real plane of getting things done, I, th- I think we'll see continuity uh, with AUKUS.
1: Um I mean it is interesting you look at the, the veteran US diplomat Henry Kissinger spoke at Davos this week and you know he's about to turn 99 <laughs> and in a very painstaking fashion he He spelt out what he thought were pitfalls between the way particularly the US is dealing with Beijing and that he said the idea that you put Taiwan at the centre of your relationship he thought was quite ill-founded and that it had to be far broader than that. It was never the idea that Taiwan was at the centre of the interplay. I mean, Sonia, it, it was pretty persuasive, I thought, his argument, and yet you know we constantly come back to it in Australia. Australia, uh, with great anxiety, um, how would you reset that? in t- in tone, I'm talking about now.
5: Mm. I think it's accepted that there is going to be no reversion to uh, the Australia-China relationship uh, of the 90s or early 2000s. That's accepted, um, and it's also accepted that you know it's a dangerous path, uh, as you note, um, Kissinger has identified, to keep going down the kind of bullshit language we've been using. So then the question becomes, what is the parameters within which we want to progress uh, the Australia-China relationship? Or our understanding of our strategic relationship with China. And I I kind of put forward that... Australia should have the same level of working relationship with China that our quad partners, Japan, India and US have. And that is not currently the case. You know, it it won't happen overnight and there's important things that China needs to do in terms of removing trade sanctions, returning prisoners, Australian prisoners in China. But that is a benchmark that we can work towards without completely resetting the relationship.
1: John, your thoughts on this? What should our new government be emphasising, I suppose? And in a way, rehearsing it for the Australian people.
6: First and foremost, I think you hit the nail dead on the head in terms of the Australian people having to get behind a serious foreign policy for Australia, because most Australians I don't think are particularly interested beyond you know, some very broad principles. And I think that's a deficiency in our external outlook, which needs to be remedied. But what you would need to say, I think, is is you know a sober appreciation of how we have to deal with China and that uh i think would very be very much on the agenda what we need to do would be of course to have a a much more significant stable and visionary set of principles for our relations with the South Pacific. Southeast Asia, uh, you know, we we do need to put more heft into Southeast Asia. I think, uh, you know, most recognize that uh, we haven't, of course, ignored Southeast Asia, but we have to do a lot more, not only because of the, the degree to which Southeast Asia fits into our, our dealings with China, but because of Southeast Asia on its own merits. And that's particularly Indonesia, which has, you know, huge... Uh, current and long-term aspects for our our own interests and our own security, but not ignoring the rest of the world because we are a middle power, and that means essentially having a network of relationships, particularly with Europe, because uh, Europe can't be seen as totally distinct from what is happening in the Indo-Pacific, if it ever was, but certainly not now, and keeping uh, a good viable set of relationships in uh, Latin America, Africa, and the Middle East, which which we need for our global purposes as a middle-sized country. Now, that's a big ask all that, but what I really mean to say is at the end of the day, the government has to say to itself, look, external policy is now a priority for Australia. It is not a secondary issue. You know, you have got with this government, people who think more deeply about foreign policy. I'm not partisan, but that's certainly the you know the sense that i picked up. Mm-hmm. I think if they can work this through a bit, and to the degree that they can develop a bipartisan policy, not going to be easy. That's all to the good. Mm-hmm. But I think we have to drop, as a country, this sort of uh, loud hailer, headbutt approach uh, when we don't like what another country's doing. It just doesn't get us anywhere. And, and, we're, and we're also regarded as slightly foolish, by the way.
1: Uh, look, let's sort of, at the last part of this conversation, let's head to the quad, which, you know, was vivid this week in Australia with the, the new prime minister going and foreign minister and, the, you know, the clearly very good sort of initial relationship between President Biden and um, Prime Minister Albanese. Now it would appear the UK and Korea want to join the quad as well. And they've got, they're doing all these practical things, offering high level scholarships to PhD students in the STEM sectors and so on. A lot of big sponsors I see when I look at their website from the US, you know, Google and so on uh, coming in behind them. So, I mean, Rory, maybe this is really a growing uh, entity, this quad, in ways uh, that um, maybe more than some of us might have imagined.
0: There's no question that the Quad is the big story of uh, coalition building in, in in the Indo-Pacific. Australia's a key part of it, and this is this is an achievement of previous governments and something that Labor has supported bipartisanly and will now take forward. That summit in Tokyo was a was a heaven sent opportunity, really, for this government to hit the ground running. And it's fascinating to see that the Quad is now attracting friends and partners. I don't think it's going to become a NATO or a, um, uh, an organisation of many, many nations. But countries like uh, South Korea, uh, the British, the Europeans, some Southeast Asian partners can, can plug and play into particular aspects of the Quad And you're absolutely right this isn't um, all about military confrontation it's about uh the things that the developing countries need it's about development assistance it's about vaccines it's about education it's about climate resilience and and it's setting standards i believe that um china will either have to match or step back from so so we're at the start um, of a really important phase of the i guess the contest for influence and i hope bringing some kind of uh, stability and a settling point to this region. I think Australia starts now in quite a confident position, that more uh, engaged approach from the new government, but a lot of the hard work that's been done in in years past. So I'm I'm reasonably confident about where we go from here.
1: Are you reasonably confident, Sonia, about this, or do you think it's got a long way to go?
5: Um, There are things that make me confident fill me with hope. So, um, you know, despite criticisms, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework had some important uh, members in its 13 inaugural members, including Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia. And um, that is a win for the Quad um, and for the Biden administration. I guess an indication that um, many countries in Southeast Asia, which will be the focus of Australia's uh, diplomatic push over the next few years, are open to partnering with Quad countries. Um, On the other hand, the Quad really needs to get some runs on the board. Uh, My colleague, Hayley Channer, has written about, you know, in the delivery of public goods, the Quad has to deliver on, on the many commitments it's made. Um, and I noted this time around, they've made some new announcements around maritime, a domain awareness, which is welcome, but we're still sitting on outcomes for the vaccine initiative of the Quad. So it, it's early days, um, but uh, there are, I think, uh, reasons to believe that it, it will continue to be a, an important player in Indo-Pacific. Mm. But in order for that, it to maintain that position, I think it, it's important it stays in Indo-Pacific grouping we talked forget, earlier forget about the Brits
1: in other words. You say.
5: Yes, I think it's important that um, for Australia, especially, that it, there is uh, an understanding that we are the leaders in this region and in this particular framework. Uh, providing those perspectives and technology, and bringing in partners as appropriate, uh, will be an important important next step.
1: Very interesting. Uh, Look, thank you all very much indeed. I do appreciate your thoughts. Uh, Rory Medcalf from the uh, ANU, Sonia Arakal from the Perth US Asia Centre, and John McCarthy, uh, one of our most senior uh, diplomats, uh, speaking to us from London. Let's see how the week unfolds uh, as we watch that um, Chinese foreign minister tour, uh, providing there is media coverage, of course, that's another issue altogether. But look, it's terrific to have so many people focused on it, in my opinion, anyway. You're with Saturday Extra. We'll now focusing on um, less profound matters, I suppose, the sorts of things that do take us to the various countries, um, and the woman who may have inspired some of us, the adventurous life of the intrepid Irish travel li- writer Dervla Murphy, as she died last weekend at the age of ninety. She rose to fame with her first book called Full Tilt, Ireland to India with a bicycle, that was published way back in nineteen sixty five. She went on to write 26 more books about Peru to Pakistan, to Laos to Romania. And she only ever travelled by bicycle, on foot, pack pony, or by public transport. And she'd always seek out conversations with locals as the basis for her writing. Edward Lynch is an organiser of the Lismore Festival of Travel Writing. That's in the south of Ireland. The festival is called Imrama. Imrama. I think that's the right word. It's an old Irish word for journey. Dervla was a patron of the festival, so we thought it a very good time to speak to Edward. Welcome.
4: Good morning. How are you?
1: Very good. Now, uh, Dervla, who uh, it's it's a she's a sort of a very well, she's a classic name, really. She was ninety years old, so I suppose there are many listeners who both have followed her, but many who may not know about her work. How much of a character was she, both in Ireland? or could we say in the travel literature circuit?
4: Oh, she was an iconic figure. Um, to, to, to I think the best way of explanation is that in, in the obituary column of her, her when the, the obituary was actually consent and uh, sympathy notices, a quarter of them that I read were just uh, we miss you, a Wexford reader, a Galway reader, and so on. Just people with no connection to her at all, but they said, you inspired me to travel, you inspired me to write and so on and so forth. She, she, she did this. But she she was she was 90, she died in, in, in November, and uh, she was lived all her life apart, obviously, from her travels, uh, leaving Lismore, but she always returned, and she would lock herself away for three, four months, and she wouldn't contact anybody. Nobody could contact her, and uh, she would set down to write her her books in longhand, 26 books as you mentioned there she wrote. She wrote in uh, longhand, did she? She did indeed and then she transferred to the typewriter and that was it and sent it off to to John Murray. John Murray published, until John Murray was taken over a few years, a very, very, very old uh, publishing company in London. But um, she she couldn't escape being involved in books because her father came down from Dublin in 1927 to Lismore and he was appointed the County Librarian. Now, this didn't go down too well because he was his first job and people thought that perhaps maybe he might be a local person or a Waterford person might be appointed. But he got over that, he became the County Librarian. He established it in the small town of Lismore, our headquarters of it, and remained like that for, for 70 years. And uh, she was an only child um, because her mother, uh, after she was born, her mother developed rheumatoid arthritis and she was actually bedridden for the rest of her life, you know. But uh, she was immersed in books. She had 8,000 books at the end of her life. Devladin. And... um, Dervil mm. had 8,000 books. I thought she had her own personal library of 8,000 books because I've seen them. She has one room stacked with books. You well, know.
1: the interesting thing, I mean, she obviously, her mother both encouraged her to sort of strike out, but then she had to come back and look after the mother. So she had this interesting sort of confinement and escape and confinement and escape, as I understand it, which I do think is sort of there in her writing.
4: Uh, no, not at all, not at all. She could express in one sentence uh, that would take us several paragraphs for the rest of us to do it. Was, she's quite interesting the, the way she, she wrote. But for her 10th birthday, her father gave her a bicycle and her grandfather gave her uh, an old atlas. And she was riding a hill, a steep hill outside this moor, And she said, you know, she said, she said to herself, uh, if I keep going like this, I could ride to India. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what she put into her head and she had to leave, she was in the Ursuline Convent in Waterford, and she had to leave it at the age of 14 to mind her mother. And her father died then of kidney problems in 1961. Her mother died in 1962. So she was actually free then. Oh, okay. Now she had, she had travelled to uh, England, Belgium, and you know, local places, <laughs> if you like to describe them as being local, crossing the sea and riding the bike around uh, northern France and, 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 and England. But she set off in the winter, the hardest winter that we've had there, in 62, 63, she set off with a, her bicycle called Ros, after Rosinante. And, uh, set India, mm. Quixote, mm. and set off for India, from Don Quixote, and set off with, uh, believe it or not, she was she had uh, been given a loan of a gun by a local Garda officer here in, 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 in town, uh, just to protect herself. So it was the only time that she carried it. Uh, she used it to shoot rabbits, I believe, she well,
1: told me. Well, though, tell us how she came to write her first book, which is a bit of a classic, full tilt, when she rode solo to India in the sixties.
4: Yeah, well, that was it. She She literally rode the bicycle right across Europe, right across Turkey, um, Iran, Afghanistan, and into India. And she found Afghanistan to be a thoroughly developed. Well, it was 60 years ago, it was a thoroughly developed country, but um, subsequent events have left it on <laughs> rather less. Mm. But anyway, she went to India and she she uh, parked a bike there and she stayed for six months mining Tibetan refugees because it was the time when China took over Tibet and there were a lot of refugees and she minded children there for six months.
1: Now, was she part of the, you know, the sort of new tone of travel writing or the new, it it was quite an interesting sort of, I think, well, you'd know far more than I, but really shifts in travel writing. Um, Where would you put her in terms of, you know, was she a very traditional, she was quite a diarist, wasn't she?
4: really? Well, that's exactly the point, that she, she broke away from the model of people looking at where I was and then maybe adding chapter on this and chapter on that. She actually wrote a diary. She wrote a diary. She did attempt to write a travel book. It wasn't accepted, but she did write articles for the Irish Times and the Irish Independent. And uh, she uh, developed her technique then of doing a diary thing and staying with people and so on. She just She just went along and people got friendly with her and then, when her daughter came along, then Rachel was was born in nineteen sixty eight, and she she went out there when she was five, five and six, out to poor. Yeah, she was a in, she was a in, single in, mother, England.
1: isn't she? Because that must have been quite a big thing. A single Ireland. mother. Mm.
4: Oh, it was a big thing, a very big thing. But that was the type of her. She didn't care for church or state or. Uh, religion or anything like that she just did her own thing and she was quite happy to do that and
1: did she stress the ethical nature of travel which is very much i think the developing sense in in travel writing i mean she was for socialism but against mass tourism very solidly against mass tourism um so i just again wonder where you place her
4: Yeah, well, she she did, of course. Naturally, she she, she went, as you mentioned earlier, she went by bike, by public transport. Um, She never drove a car or anything like that. And she uh, got lifts and so on and so forth by train and she went across to Siberia by the Trans-Siberian Express. And uh, she would do things as ethically as she could. But very often she went to uh, her lovely, her aptly named book, Eight Feet in the Andes. Two of them were her feet, two of them were Rachel's feet, and four of them were the mule that were there. So that was the Eight Feet in the Andes. Um, and she did that. She, so she got mule mule trains and packs. And she was very fond of mules because she had mules and donkeys in several places, you know. where she did South America, um, Australia, or Africa, she um in latterly latterly then she did get politicized she wrote on bradford and the problems with black people in england and gaza strip and then she brought the last big holiday that she had was well holiday working holiday was to cuba with her daughter and her three lovely grandchildren and they were born in italy and uh she went to cuba and uh, I believe they camped on, on on the beach there in the same style as she was used to. So they were well used to Granny being like that.
1: And what, did she make money from her writing? I mean, you had the, did she come to the festival a lot? Was she somebody who really felt that it had given her a career, or did she not care about that?
4: Oh, no, 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 she she, she made made quite a lot of money out of it and made herself, made her quite independent, you know. She uh, lived, funny enough, across the road from where I live in in South Maryland, it's more. Then her father built a house beside the convent. But then she went, because so many people were were, were calling to her, literally popping in the door, um, she wanted a bit of peace and quiet. So she went into the middle of town, up a little side street, uh, into the old market house, and uh, she was there and she was quite happy. She oh. just locked the case and she'd stay inside and right away there.
1: And what's your, uh, uh, your favourite book Like we can recommend to listeners of hers?
4: Yeah, I'd say, I'd say Full Tilt. Full mm. Tilt is probably oh, okay. probably probably one of, one of the finest, you know. So, We've uh, got
1: to go, Edward, I'm afraid. Look, thank you very much indeed no for talking to us. to talk to you. Okay. Edward Bye. Lynch from the Lismore Festival of Travel Writing and vale d'Urbla-Murphy. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Duke. Thank you for your company today and I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts,
5: live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.